Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Welcome to episode number 269 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Today's episode features a guest, which is something that I haven't done in quite a while. And this is actually a return guest. His name is Frank Giampaolo. He's written many different tennis books. He's an incredible coach. And today we're going to talk about neuropriming, which is a topic that he just published a new book about. And in our conversation that you're about to hear, you'll hear him describe how you can use that to improve faster, raise your tennis IQ, and also play matches more like you practice. So I'm just going to go ahead and uh, get right into the conversation. Hope you enjoy it, and I'll talk to you at the other side. On the line with me here is Frank Giampaolo. Frank, welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Good to see everybody. Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Uh, those of you who are longtime followers of the Essential Tennis Podcast probably remember Frank. Is this your third time? I know I've had you on at least one other time, Frank, but have you been on two other times? You know, I'm, I'm not positive. I, it's probably at least, at least a couple. So. It's been a while. Yeah, but it's always fun to get in and dig into some new, uh, new insights, you know? Yeah, absolutely. The last time Frank was on, we talked about his other book called The Tennis Parents Bible, which I highly recommend checking out for all you uh, tennis parents out there. Um, Frank, just a little context. Uh, Frank sent an email out several weeks ago about uh, a book that he's coming out with. Um, and this this call, just so everybody's aware, like Frank didn't initiate at all. I, I read through some of his new material and found it super, super fascinating. And it fits in perfectly with the topics that we've been covering here on the podcast the last several months, which uh, Frank, you and I discussed, uh, have to do with amateur adult tennis players, super passionate, driven players who are looking for a way to improve faster and lead their own, yeah. in many cases, lead their own improvement process. And what I was reading in Neuropriming for Peak Performance really just seemed to, to pair up perfectly with that. So um, looking forward to it. And for those who are unfamiliar with you and your background, and, and just like a minute or two at the most, can you please give us a little bit of uh, context about your background? Um, how did you start in tennis? And who are you working with now? Yeah, no, great. I um, I played college ball back in the 80s. And uh I went to work straight out of college from um, the Midwest. I was in Ohio. I came to California. Very lucky I got a job working for Vic Braden, and I ended awesome. up spending 20 years with him and uh, just a beautiful guy. And uh, he was so passionate about sports science. He had the, the, the National Tennis Research Center at Coda de Casa. So I kind of walked into something just, incredible so i was mentored you know from from an early age i've been doing it ever since so i'm about 35 years into it um obviously i was a tennis parent as well with you mentioned the tennis parent bible um really enjoyed it my daughter was number one in the nation and about 250 in the pro tours by 15 years old and she got to play the u.s open and a bunch of the other grand slam tournaments so um Things worked out well. 
But from my side of the coin back then, I realized that nobody was helping Tina's parents with this journey. And, and it's a tough journey for parents. Yeah. So that was the first book. And, uh, and we've been kind of banging, banging around the world ever since with, uh, I've been lucky with four or five best-selling books, and and this latest one seems to really be touching a nerve. You know, is how do we actually how do we improve at a faster rate? How do we maximize you know potential quicker? So that's what neuropriming is all about. Well, that is also what I'm all about, and what uh, the show is all about. So that's that's why I was excited to have you back on. So I've I've got a lot of different questions here related to the content in that book, but let's just start off with the very uh, surface level or basic uh, term, which is obviously neuro priming, which sounds very intimidating and space age. And uh, well, I'm sure you can uh, make it. Um, it's kind of bring it down to earth for us. So what, what is, in a nutshell, what is neuropriming and, and how does it relate to the improvement process? Well, every, everything we do is mental. So if you even want to just take your little index finger and move it up and down, the first thing that happens really is it's, it's a neurocoded motor program. And they used to call it muscle memory if you remember. Sure. But even like 10-year-old kids, like, they know there's no such thing as muscle memory. We don't store memory in the muscle. It's all just sent down in these motor programs from your brain through the nervous system into different muscle groups. And just strengthening this neural pathway is super important. And so what we're trying to get at with the book is to really try to help athletes with the whole idea of uh, organizing their physical, mental, and emotional tool belts. And then what we're doing essentially is we're writing down our own customized scripts and then we're reading them into our own personal cell phones and we're listening to these, um, these scripts two or three nights a week. We're listening before matches. And it's turning out that it's, it's super important, even for some of the top college players that I'm working with at USC, Harvard, um, some of these big-time teams and uh, – we're finding out really that everybody that plays the game, everybody pretty much warms up their strokes and their athleticism, which is the hardware side. So a fun way for adult athletes to look at their tennis game is the same way they look at their computer. So for the computer to run efficiently, it has to have hardware and software. Hardware is the strokes and athleticism of tennis. But the software is mental and emotional. Well, as we all know, nobody really ever would warm up the software. But then we get into matches, and under this competitive stress, you know, poor emotions or poor mental plans can hijack even the best strokes. Mm. So, you know, and, and most players out there listening, you know, we can have a great practice day on you know, on Friday, the coach is feeding a beautiful ball right to you. And we're like, man, I'm going to be on the tour. This game is easy. Yep. And the very next game comes, and the next day there's a big match, and you're playing a moon ball pusher. They hit slow and slower. You lose. And we just don't get it at first. We're like, well, how, how can I be great in practice, horrible in a match? Well, usually it's because we're not really organizing and then warming up, you know, mental and emotional. So that's what it's all about. So it sounds to me like neuropriming 
and please uh, obviously correct me if I'm wrong in this assumption, uh, but I'll, I'll ask you the question and then you can go from there. Uh, it sounds to me, based on what you just described, that neuropriming, its, its biggest benefit or use is for activating the the physical uh, tools, the movement patterns that we've already learned and uh, have worked hard to try to master on the practice court. Is, is that accurate? Is it more so for that or is it more for learning new movement patterns or is it really for both? Well, the way this neuropriming for peak performance book is laid out is there's five different chapters. There's one for the physical strokes and the whole idea is that I want all the athletes to have a two or three word catchphrase that optimistically leads them to the, to the solution. So let's say they're, they're pulling out of their forehand instead of saying things like don't jump out of it, <laughs> which is spotting the problem. I'd rather have people spot the solution, mm. which maybe it's keep your head down, kiss your shoulder, whatever the customized script is. So the fun part is, we could take a whole team, like a Harvard team. We can take 10 people, and there's 10 different scripts. Everybody has their own unique catchphrases for all the strokes. And any of the strokes are grouped in primary and secondary strokes. So you don't just have one forehand. You have six forehands. You have short angles, high and heavy, slices. And we need to kind of have our, our game plan you know, dialed in before the match so when, you know, when things hit the fan and things aren't going great, we want the solution to pop up in the athlete's brain instantaneously, mm. you know, instead of just the problem. Sure. And uh, so I guess neuropriming is just kind of a fancy way of saying um, imagery, visualization, or mental rehearsals. And there's a lot of sports science that talks about Athletes that do mental rehearsal, especially adults that don't have enough time to practice enough, even if they're doing, you know, drive time mental rehearsals where they're listening to their solutions in their headphones in the car, but they're 10 times more likely you know, to play in the zone, to play at their peak performance level. It's kind of like, it's kind of like getting all the answers to the math test before you walk into the math test. If you have all your answers organized, the game's a heck of a lot easier. Nice. I like that. And we're going to come back to um, the scenario that, that uh, you just talked about, which is a really common, like one that I've literally received lots of emails on uh, from podcast listeners saying, okay, so let's just say I, I'm leaving the office. I'm going on, on my way to my match at the club. What do, what do I do? You know, I don't have a court to warm up on, et cetera, et cetera. Sounds like this is a perfect solution for that. And we're going to come back around to that. Uh, but first, I would, I'd like to ask you about a couple of different quotes that I pulled uh, from the handbook. And the first one, I, sometimes I like to stir the pot a little bit. Uh, the, the, the first one is actually the opening line in the introduction. And I'd love to hear you kind of uh, talk about this or expand on it. Um, and that quote is, in the medical field, heart surgeons report that if they practiced the way that they did just five years ago, they would, have been, they, they would be sued for malpractice. Yet in the business of coaching tennis, teaching professionals all too often teach the same fundamental systems they were taught decades ago. Um, can, you, can you expand on that a little bit? What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, sure. I, um, I've been super lucky enough to 
worked for ITF coaching groups around the world. So tennis, you know, Israel, tennis, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, Mexico. But anyway, the funny thing is all the way around the world, no matter where you go, you see the same issues. You see 95% of all the coaches working on playing catch back and forth with their students. Mm. Hit it back to me, I'll hit it back to you. Well, a competitive game, winning you know, under stress and matches, requires you to play the game of keep away, not catch. So competitive tennis is a little bit different. Um, and so the whole idea really is what I'm trying to do from my angle is to try to nudge the uh, coaching industry a little bit forward into the, into the realms of we do have to coach the mental, the emotional. There's, a, there's so many benefits to organizing your strategic tactical scripts. And there's so many benefits to even organizing your emotional scripts, like how to handle panicking, how to handle choking, how to handle gamesmanship, how to close out leads. There's just boatloads of these topics that are kind of found in this book. And what we're trying to do with it is, is again, just trying to make sure athletes organize their answers. And the fun part about the book is in the back of the book, we have all five of the scripts with sample answers from a Harvard player. So if any athlete, any adult athlete, they go, I don't even know what I would do. They would just fast forward over to page 52 and look at the answers from a Harvard player. And <laughs> it's a great way to get organized. Shoot off the Harvard test. Yeah, exactly. Nice. But uh, yeah, it's all, it's all fun. So anyway, that was the, the whole idea with the very beginning is it's up to us, the coaches also to kind of buy into these concepts that, just teaching fundamental stroke production is probably not going to, you know, create super successful, you know, competitive athletes. We have to teach the whole package, mm. which is like we said before, you know, software and hardware. So, absolutely. So, if you could yeah. boil it down, definitely when it comes to mental toughness issues, one of the top complaints or problems or frustrations that we hear from players is exactly so um, apt that you painted that illustration earlier in our conversation where you talked about hitting amazing during practice and then going to the match situation and and having those those feelings those results have be nowhere to be found uh, so what do you what do you think is the biggest culprit for that both on the player side and on the the coach's side well, it's a little bit of both. I think the idea is that coaches have to get out of their old school methodologies a little bit. It's up to us, you know, people like you that are pushing new boundaries. I think that's important for the evolution of the game, evolution of coaching. Um, but from but from just, you know, an average adult recreational player, I mean, I've never, I've never worked with a rec player that says, hey, Frank, you know, hey, Ian, can you make me completely average? They don't, <laughs> they don't want to be average, man. They, they don't want to, you know, kick Harold's butt and Bertha's butt from up the street. So they want all the state-of-the-art info. And so one of the things I try to do is even if I'm working with a 3.5 level, you know, adult rec player, I would say things like, look, is it okay with you if we train you? You just like you were a top 10 nationally ranked junior or a college athlete can we give you 
the same data, same info, run you through those type of drills, which are very different. We, if we run athletes through keep-away drills, which basically are changing and coming out going angles versus always hitting it back to the coach. And guess what? The athlete gets more comfortable changing the angle. They get more comfortable playing keep away. And that's where, you know, winning matches is found. So it's a ton of fun doing this kind of stuff. So if you were, if you were to give a top one or two, like, practical action steps uh, to uh, a 3-5 or 4 amateur player uh, to more successfully play in matches like he or she does in practice, what, what would those one or two things be? Well, the first thing would be identify your own personality profile. Some people call it brain typing. Mm. Uh, and the whole idea is if we can understand how you're wired, your genetic predisposition, we would get a great understanding as far as being the coach. We get a greater understanding if you're more introverted or extroverted or uh, intuitive or sensate. So we can kind of go through it a little bit if you want, but basically different personalities are wired to play the game differently. There's a reason why pusher retrievers play the way they do because they're wired like that. There's also a reason why some people like to attack and they love to strike bold winners. They don't want to just stay back and retaliate. And it's based on how they're wired. So essentially, if I was more of a club player, I would really look into it because if we go through just the the four categories of the Myers-Briggs type indicator, introverts and extroverts, introverted people usually would rather pay attention than retaliate. Extroverts want to instigate the action, Mm -hmm. and they want to make it happen. These are two different kinds of athletes. Um, then there's also another category, sensate versus intuitive people. Sensates want all the facts first, and then they'll jump in and, and perform an act. Intuitive people trust their gut instincts. They like to do it first, and then they'll analyze it later. Very different personality profiles. And for us as, as coaches, it's really big. I've had players that, you know, we're ranked top 100 in California. And within six months, they're ranked top 10 winning national titles because now we're training them to play the type of game that's dictated by their personality as opposed to playing the type of game that the coach used to play back in his or her day. Mm, sure. That's, that's kind of meaningful right there. Um, and then the second thing, if I, was a, um, if I was a rec player but a pretty serious athlete, I definitely would organize my own personal top seven patterns of play. This is to expose my strengths and hide my weaknesses. And this would be things like what's my favorite serve pattern to the do side and my favorite serve pattern to the add. Sometimes with athletes, and Ian, you know this part too, but sometimes what they're most proficient at is not their favorite. So we have to explain that even to the listeners, like serving to the ad side, hitting a nice kick serve out wide to the backhand, and then you know, hitting a cross-court forehand is probably the most proficient pattern. But we all remember the big ace that went in in 2014 in a <laughs> tornado. And so we go for that. That's our favorite shot. 
It never really goes in, but it's our favorite. So we have to make sure we, you know, categorize that with our athletes that what are your most proficient. So the first two are your, your surf patterns. And this is all in the mental, you know, chapter of this little book. But second two is your return of serves. What's your favorite return of serve play versus a big serve? So in the book we talk about you can stand farther back like Rafa, high and heavy. That's a method that's successful. You can stand on the baseline like Djokovic and match the ball speed. That's successful to him. Or you can stand in close like a Karlovic and just chip everything on the return. That's another option. But even intermediate club players, man, if they know what they do best and then actually do what they do best in matches, especially in tipping points where it's add-in, add-out, I can pretty much guarantee any intermediate club player listening, if you write down your script of your top seven patterns, you rehearse them like crazy with Ian, then you're going to go out in a match, you're going to run what you do best, that is a beautiful way to walk into a tennis match. But most athletes don't, right? Most are pretty reactive. You, uh, you ask them, you know, what, what do you do best? What's your best patterns? And most athletes go, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so what, so what, would your, pretty- what would your response be to that athlete who, who isn't yet self-aware enough to actually know what their top patterns are? Well, then I would just kind of talk about taking maybe a half hour out of their normal hitting lesson and sit down and organize who you are. What do you do best? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? How can we expose your strengths more in match? And it's to me, it's pretty amazing that anybody that can beat you 6'4", six, 6'4", four, six, four, you'll probably beat them 4-4. Four and four. If you just do what you do best on big points, on, on game points, run the patterns that you do best. And uh, so that's, that's always fun for me, getting athletes to understand who they are and and why they do what they do. Um, you've seen it before, and I'm sure a lot of the, the, the folks listening have have seen a situation when they go to a, you know, a tennis lesson, and the coach is Jose Gonzalez. He played for you know, Virginia, and he was a backcourt <laughs> retriever. He didn't play some minor league pro tennis. And most you know, athletes are like, that guy sounds good. But... But the thing is that Jose Gonzalez demands everybody plays tennis with the same system that he used to play. Right. So he makes everybody stay back and do 30-ball rallies. Well, that's terrific if you're wired like that. If you're wired like Serena Williams, who likes you know, shot tolerance of maybe a four-ball rally, you're not going to do too well with Jose Gonzalez if he's demanding you know, that Serena stays back and hits high and heavy 30 balls every point, you know? Hmm. So getting into the athlete's world is is a ton of fun, and I think the best coaches do that, you know? So uh, first of all, if this is sounding interesting to you, the listener, then uh, a huge chunk of, of uh, Frank's book is dedicated to worksheets and uh, questions uh, to actually run you through this process of getting to know yourself better, uh, which is a really interesting uh, part of it uh, for me. Uh, so to go back to what you were just talking about, Frank, 
I'm curious, have you ever run into a player who has a personality that leads them in, in one direction? Maybe they're, they're more assertive and extroverted, and, and so maybe their personality would lead them to be more, more aggressive or low shot tolerance. But the, their physical skills uh, make it difficult for them to execute on that on the their personality end of the spectrum. Does that make sense? Do you, do you ever yeah. work with players who physically and emotionally kind of are going in different directions? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's a pretty deep question. I I appreciate that right off the bat. And probably one of the most famous clients that I worked with for years was is Sam Query. Hmm. And uh, as a kid, Sam was and still is very his brain type personality profile, very introverted, sensate. He's a thinker, not a feeler. Basically, his whole brain type is stay back, counterpunch, be safe, play 15 feet behind the baseline. His body type, obviously, is six foot six. <laughs> and so coaches forever have been saying, look, man, you got to get to the net. Get that guy vulnerable and attack because he has huge weapons. But he has a dilemma. His brain type says one thing. His body type says the opposite. So even to this day, if you watch him under pressure, he's found sometimes 10, 15 feet behind the baseline. And, uh, you know, even a lot, even great intermediate adult players can spot that on TV and go, man, why isn't he attacking? Well, because he's not wired like that. He wants all the facts first before he hmm. goes. So he hesitates. And so just good question. And that's where it gets complicated and and fun but i got to admit hmm. those are the challenges so what would your advice be for for an amateur adult athlete who, who's listening who maybe self-identifies with that I, I, maybe there's there, there is no rule of thumb here but do you in general recommend that they go more with their personality versus their their uh, physical uh, toolbox or, or vice versa you know if it was um in my opinion, it would be to take three matches and every set do the court positioning chart, which is a, it's a very simple chart, but all you do is you have a, a coach or a high IQ tennis friend sit down and they're going to just have two columns. It's called court positioning chart. So behind the court, win or lose, inside the court, win or lose. And so the athlete plays set after set for about four sets. When the point's over, if the athlete is still behind the court, we check whether he won or lost the point. If the athlete is found inside the court when the point's over, we check whether the athlete wins or loses. And so an interesting example, Callie Joukowsky is a student of mine. She's from San Diego. Uh, she's number one in California, um, top ten in the nation. About a year ago, we did those charts, and she said, I'm super comfortable behind the court. I'm a hard-hitting baseliner. I love to crush it. I love to stay back. I'm better staying back. And so I said, let's check it out. <laughs> so we did, we did the charts. Anyway, after six sets, she was winning 78% of all the points that she was playing inside the court, 38% behind. Wow. So she goes, look, I'm just going to play inside. And she went on and won four national titles in a row, 
four national tournaments back to back. All she did different was played inside the court because that's where the numbers, you know, revealed she was more successful. So that's what I would recommend with the players is to check out some of those interesting types of charts, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's see, but before we get back, I want to kind of get back into the rehearsal, uh, the mental rehearsal yeah. and kind of practical stuff. But uh, first one more, uh, just kind of, this just kind of personally an interesting uh, question for me. You mentioned uh, tennis IQ a second ago, I, but I noticed, I can't, I don't remember where I grabbed this, uh, this line from, but you talked about EQ as well, emotional uh, quota. And the, the sentence I grabbed here was designing an athlete's personalized audio recordings is best completed with a high EQ coach or a tennis mind. Uh, can you talk to you, you didn't give any context about uh, EQ in the book, at least not right there uh, where I was reading it. Why, why is emotional quota important when it comes to tennis improvement? Well, a lot of the studies that I'm digging into deeper and deeper, a lot of the studies show that uh, emotional aptitude is more important than IQ. It's more important than perfect form Hmm. because, I mean, every athlete knows that your emotions can hijack even the best strokes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) If your emotions are gone, you're toast. And uh, interestingly, though, we have to, as coaches, we have to help athletes with their solutions if some of these emotional issues are happening what's the solution to get out of it how do we salvage the match um i mean let's face it sometimes we would lose to somebody that is just a better athlete and on that day they do deserve to win other times though man we're losing to a toad like how can i lose to this guy he's not even that good and we've all done it but we're self-destructing right Sure. And, uh, but that's emotional aptitude. And the, the book that I have out last year's book, which lucky for me, that was the number one bestseller too, but that was called emotional aptitude in sports. So it really, that whole book just dives into the whole emotional climate of, uh, you know, you're competing. And for me being a coach like yourself, here's what I hear all the time. And tell me this is, common with you when somebody loses them in a match right we never hear them walk off the court and say man if my follow-through was two inches higher i would have won but i never hear that i always hear things like the other guy cheated uh we weren't really ready to play we weren't really warmed up i didn't you know i didn't get a chance to train this week i was up five two and i i couldn't close out the match I choked, I panicked. So it's interesting, whenever people lose, they come off the court and talk about mental or emotional you know, deficiencies. So that's kind of why it's, it's just a, a ball for me to work on mental and emotional. Because I think that's really what, what most players need to dive into a little bit. Um, the reason why most intermediate athletes are losing is because they're only working on their fundamental strokes. Hmm. So I'll give you an example. Tell me if you, tell me if you agree, because I'm, I'm curious to on this one, but let's say all around the world, people always talk about 
We hate playing moon ball pusher retrievers. They're they're a nightmare. But if you ever go into somebody's house and you see a whole room full of trophies, you can just say, "Hey, man, I bet you're a great pusher, right?" And they go, "Yeah." <laughs> they have all the trophies all the time. But so anyway, to beat great pusher retrievers, you have to have primary strokes and secondary strokes. So you you know it's not just fundamentals, but you got to have your secondary. So you're your short angles, your high and heavy strokes, your swing volleys, your drop volleys. Those are the tools you need to beat really good pushers. But the problem lies is we don't train those secondary strokes. We just rally back and forth with the coach and they go, great job, see you next week. You know, and they come back and do it again. So secondary strokes are huge. Athleticism, obviously fitness, stamina, endurance, that's huge if you're going to beat a retriever. Most of us don't have that, including me. Mental is the strategies and tactics. How do you diffuse and pull a retriever out of their comfort zone? Now you're getting into the mental game, Hmm. strategies and tactics. And then, of course, there's the emotional realm with all the performance anxieties that that, that you you face because retrievers drive you nuts because they don't give you one free point. They get back a lot of your winners. So it's totally annoying, right? So I think we have to work on developing the whole tool belt, not just hitting another bucket of you know, fundamentals. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, the, the rally ball is like just your cost of entry against uh, a pusher. Like it's, it's a given. You need to be able to have some shot tolerance or else you have no chance at all. But if that's the only tool you have, then and frequently that's the case, and that's when people really get into those uh, long, frustrating matches where they're not, they don't feel like they're in control at all, and they don't really have any, as you uh, called it, secondary weapons to take control and take charge. Yeah, right on. And uh, the, fun, the, the fun part is it's not even that difficult. If, if athletes just organize their weekly developmental plans, um, they'd be amazed how fast they can maximize their potential. And, uh, and I think that's what we're trying to do. You know, folks like you and I, we're, we're trying to get, you know, athletes better at a faster rate. So 100%. yeah, training the whole tour belt is big. All right. So let's, um, let's go back and, uh, we'll start to wrap things up. But first I want to bring us back to like really practical, uh, action steps that our listeners can take so let's go back to that scenario frank where where we're in the car you know we're a a 4.0 usta player just got done sitting at our desk in the office you know from our nine to five and now we've got like a 20 minute drive to the club where we may or may not have time on the court to really do a proper warm-up outside of the the 10 minute one that we're given how how do we use that time Mm -hmm. Uh, best how, how can we best activate ourselves to be prepared yeah let's walk let's walk through one of the audio you know one of the audio tapes is going to be on their cell phones awesome um the mental protocols for singles let's say let's say your athlete they're going to go in and play a men's league singles match so what i would ask them to do is to listen to the five minute audio tape that they read in their own voice into their own cell phone. So some of the things they're going to read would be like, 
My A game plan is hard-hitting baseliner. My B plan is set, steady counterpuncher. My shot tolerance level is five balls. We want mm. athletes to know how they're wired, what's their tolerance. Awesome. My primary top seven patterns of play. We talked about that a little bit earlier, but I want the athlete to be rehearsing this over and over in their head. So most proficient serving pattern to the deuce, most proficient serving pattern to the add, most proficient return of serve pattern versus a big first serve, most proficient return of serve position and pattern against the second serve. We want athletes to get the solutions down. We want them to digest, memorize what they do best. Number five is the best rally pattern. Here's a funny story about rally patterns. I was, I was in Barcelona training, and I'm going back there in a couple of weeks uh, over Thanksgiving. But so I get to this club, it's academy. I won't mention the academy, but I, I get to the academy, eight courts in a row, in a row. They're all having the athletes hit high and heavy to the backhand. Hi-hee, high and heavy. Then the other <laughs> guy gives them a short ball, and they come in, hee, and then they hit a winner. And I go, what, what pattern are they doing out there? It's right when they got off the plane. And the Spanish coaches started laughing. I'm like, wait, no, really, tell me, what are they doing? They go, well, we call this How to Beat the Americans. <laughs> and that's the name of their rally pattern, high and heavy to the backhand, which is a secondary service. So anyway, uh, number six, what's your most proficient short ball option? Do you like to come in and crush it down the line? Do you prefer approach shot volley? And number seven, most proficient net rushing pattern. Here's something interesting. Here in Southern California, where I live, the top kids in the nation, they're, they're, for the females, for the gals, the, the best way they love to go to the net, moon ball approach. They call it fence the other girl. Mm-hmm. And then they come in for a swing volley. Nice. That's how they like to go to the net. Um, so anyway, this, this script talks about how they'll profile the opponent's game score management. Um, there's a whole slew of mental topics. And so the fun part is the athlete writes down their personal script. They're listening to it in the car. So now they're not only, you know, they're not only going to go and hopefully warm up their strokes a little bit, but their mental game is warmed up. So what really, which is, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. It's, if athletes actually know what they're going to do, you know? Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to comment on. This, what really strikes me about this is I, I feel, I get the sense from so many amateur players. I think amateur adult players tend to be really intimidated by the word strategy or tactics. And they they assume that a good strategy or, or tactical approach is some kind of insanely complex algorithm of uh, different angles and patterns and if-then statements. And you just went through a list of, I'm sorry, what was it, uh, seven uh, different points? Yeah, yeah, top seven. seven. Seven different points that have nothing to do, like we don't, we don't know, as we're assuming, that we don't even know who we're playing yet. And yet um, all of these patterns... And all of these different um, things that we're meditating on about our strengths and weaknesses and, and whatnot sounds like gives us a really solid plan of attack uh, 
before we even know anything about our opponent, which is sounds really empowering to me. Yeah, I really love the idea about know who you are first. And I got to spend about six years traveling with the senior tour, doing stats and corporate, you know, entertaining with Vic Braden. But one of the things we found really is um, if athletes have their solutions pre-wired, it sure helps. It's like preventative medicine, really. Mm. Um, So I really want athletes to kind of like a pro, they're going to go into, see if this makes sense, but they're going to go into every match, whether it's first round or the finals, whether it's on hard court, clay or grass, whether it's in Miami or Moscow, they're going to start every match doing what they do best, which is what top pros do. They know what they do best. They go in doing what they do best. Now, if it's working, they just keep on doing it. If it's not working, they shift to what I call stylistic strategy, which is identifying the style of the opponent. So if they're losing, they go, okay, I'm losing. What style is the other player? And then once they decide the style, then they have to plug in a contingency plan. So hardwiring their contingency plan. What are the patterns I need to run to beat a moonball pusher? What are the patterns to beat hard-hitting baseliners? And um, so that's part of hardwiring, um, you know, the preset solutions for any possible problem. Um, with this top seven, here's an interesting little tidbit. The SETA had me take some top juniors to Indian Wells Tennis Garden. We're, we're charting Rafa Nadal against Ryan Harrison, and we're charting top seven <coughs> patterns. Okay, so get this. Rafa Nadal <laughs> on the ad side serving. Were, were there even seven a, patterns? <laughs> it was, well, yeah, they all know what they do best in different situations, but in serving, here's the interesting part. Rafa hit a slow slice wide to Ryan Harrison. Ryan hit a chip return. Rafa hit the inside out forehand mm-hmm. to the opposing corner. 84% of the time in the <laughs> match, he did that. And that really helped a lot of these 17-year-old boys go, yeah, maybe we should just, like, decide what we do best and do it. That's amazing. Because, yeah, they watched Rafa do it, and he didn't waste any of his battery life, physical, mental, and emotional batteries. He didn't waste any of them against Ryan Harrison. He just did what he did best and it worked, so he didn't stop. And I think So it's fun stuff. Rafa is such a classic example of that. Uh, and, I, and I think just br- using him as an example, especially, I think really causes a light bulb uh, to go off for a lot of players. Uh, and when I talk about single strategy, especially to lower level or I- intermediate players, frequently the question is brought up when I, when I start talking about the, the directionals and patterns of play and playing high percentage versus changing direction. And almost inevitably, a question is brought up, well, what if, what if my opponent figures out what I'm trying to do? And it's like this, uh, there's this attitude like, as if, if my opponent knows what I'm doing, then it couldn't possibly be effective. Um, but then I usually follow up with, well, when Federer plays Nadal, do you think that either of them have any question at all about what the other person is going to do? Uh, at least out of the gate. 
And of course, the answer is, is no. Everybody on the planet knows what Rafa's patterns are going to be. And yet he's got an incredible, still incredible record against uh, Roger. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a great point right there. And, you know, from folks listening, if, if you're winning two out of three points with a certain pattern, keep on hitting the oh. same old boring winners, right? Yeah, you're way over ahead, over. two out of three, yeah. Oh, great numbers. But I think you're right. I think a lot of times adults overthink. They're like, you know, I'm a CEO of a major corporation. <laughs> I manage 500 people. It can't be that easy. And so they start adding all these intricate things. And I think from a coach's side, and you know, we have to get most athletes not to do more or think more. We have to get them to do less. Hmm. We have to trim the fat off their crazy strokes. Yep. We have to trim the fat off their strategies instead of them going out in a match and just reacting to whatever happens, happens. We can get them to be a little more proactive and just stick to you know, to things that work. And, uh, you know, it, it's fun because it's, it's all customized to each individual. It, there's not a one size fits, fits all pattern. So if I wrote this book with only one version of answers, it'd be a horrible book. <laughs> you know, it has to, it, so we have to have everybody be accountable for their own solutions. Mm. We have to have the athletes be accountable for organizing their own game. I love so, it. That's been a big theme of mine over the last couple of podcast episodes has been uh, taking responsibility for your own uh, improvement uh, journey. And uh, I, I love how so much of this book is dedicated to that, uh, to answering questions, you know, some of them very simple and others, other questions much more uh, beneath the surface. Um, so please tell us, Frank, where, where is the best place uh, to pick up neuropriming for peak performance? Well, it's, you know, it's all over the internet on probably 20 different book sites, but obviously Amazon is a, a very simple one for most people. Um, my website is maximizingtennispotential.com. Okay. And of course all the books are there too, but um, I would bet Amazon would be the, the quickest way especially if people are listening from overseas. Um, nowadays, if you don't know with Amazon, you can have hard copy books made, and Amazon will make the hard copy overnight and ship it out the next day. Wow. So, yeah, so back in the day, an author would maybe have to buy boxes of books, store them in their garage. Well, it's not how the publishing business works anymore. Now you can order an ebook or a hard copy. If you order hard copy, it's called print by demand. And they'll print it out, whether you're in Africa or Australia, and it'll be on your doorstep in a week. So, Awesome. So uh, either, either Frank's website or Amazon.com. And as uh, Frank just mentioned, I, I didn't count, but you've got to have at least uh, 10 different titles on Amazon. Uh, you've got quite a nice library of uh, titles, which is uh, really impressive, Frank. Well, thanks. I, I'm really trying to... You know, I'm just trying to, like, give give back to the game. That's just given me so much. So um, that's really super important for me. And then, you know, if athletes can dig into these books a little bit and go into a match, and if they can change their inner dialogue from negative or pessimistic to 
you know, optimistic and solution oriented. And I think we did our job. So it's all about changing that inner dialogue, you know, at crunch time. Absolutely. Any uh, parting uh, words of wisdom or kind of um, outlooks or practical things that we, we didn't touch on that you think are really important before we wrap up here? Well, I think just a, a nice little quote would be that great performances, they, they really stem from great decision-making. And great decisions are thought through, they're organized, they're pre-planned. So if you're going to go out there and win whole tournaments, um, you know, and have a great performance, it comes from being organized. Your, your routines and your rituals dictate your results. So if you're not getting good results, change your routines and rituals. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, Frank, I want to thank you for your time. I don't want to take too much of it. Uh, really appreciate you spending some time with me. And uh, I think my listeners are going to appreciate this very much. Uh, for those of you listening, make sure you check out MaximizingTennisPotential.com. Uh, you can order all of Frank's books there, um, I believe, um, or uh, at Amazon.com. And again, the, uh, the handbook that Frank and I have been talking about today is called Neuropriming for Peak Performance. It's one with the, the worksheets and the, the charts and uh, all that good stuff. Uh, Frank, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And it's uh, been great having you back on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, Ian. All the best, everybody. Take care. There you go. I hope you really enjoyed my conversation with Frank. Highly recommend checking out his new book. And if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please do me a favor and tell somebody else about it, a teammate, practice partner, a coach, club member, somebody who plays at your local courts. Just let them know about the Essential Tennis Podcast. I'd appreciate that a lot. And if you've really appreciated it and it's helped, helped you improve, then uh, it'd be great if you could leave a, a review on the iTunes Music Store, which is the, the top place where people discover the Essential Tennis Podcast. Thank you so much uh, for your time, your attention today. And uh, if you have any thoughts on this episode, let me know by shooting me an email to ian at essentialtennis.com. For more free game-improving instruction, be sure to check out essentialtennis.com, where you'll find hundreds of video, audio, and written lessons. Also, be sure to subscribe to Essential Tennis on iTunes and YouTube, where we are the number one resource in the world, providing passionate instruction for passionate tennis players. Thank you so much for listening today. Take care and good luck with your tennis.